0: This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Hello. And this is a guided tour through one of the most amazing and deep interview archives, On the planet. Well, that's true. And you know, uh, these
1: interviews have been done by various people. Some we know and some we don't. And some of these interviews we've done ourselves. And I'm happy to say that I got a chance to interview the Backstreet Boys in the year 2000. At the time, they had just come off the album Millennium and they were huge. Right. And so they were releasing their new album called Black and Blue. And I got to fly to New York for the day. To check into a hotel – I didn't check into a hotel, but I met them in a hotel room, interviewed three of the guys, went back to the airport, actually stopped for a plate of spaghetti at a, at a New York Italian restaurant. <laughs> of
0: course <went> you did. Went <laughs> back to
1: the airport and flew back home. And that's how quick it was. And it was amazing. It was so, it's so fun. And you know it's big time yeah. when the band is flying you down to New York to do the interview. So it's great. And you the feel a little
0: onus is, on you, too, to kind of get it right? What did you just call me?
1: <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> – <laughs> so, yes, you do. You do feel a certain amount of pressure from the record company and from the radio station that's sending you, right? Because you want it to sound really good. And How much time did you had... have? Um, I think I had 20 minutes. Right. And that's a long way to travel for 20 minutes worth of tape. But mm-hmm. you were asking them a whole bunch of different questions. We're going to play just part of it, probably seven to eight minutes of the interview here. And the interesting thing is, I thought that I had, like, I could top you with Backstreet Boys stories. But after this interview, you're actually going to top me with a Backstreet Boys story. And it, this really kind of ticks me off, to be um, honest. You know? <laughs> okay.
0: You'll get over it, though.
1: And also, we go to the mid-70s with Steely Dan. Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, the late Walter Becker, Mm. and this is great stuff here. And then in our very last segment, where I'm going to tell you who it is, it's a guy who worked a lot with those guys and with the musicians that worked in Steely Dan. He's a Canadian artist. He's terrific on his own. He's a great songwriter, and we're going to ask him about writing one of the biggest songs of the 90s, which was a huge hit for another artist. We're going to talk to him about that today. Excellent. All right, so here we go. Black and Blue from the fall of 2000. Very big album for them, but not nearly as big as Millennium. That came out the year before. And of course, Millennium had one of the greatest pop songs of all time. I want it that oh, way. Man. Sorry.
0: I'm very afraid. <laughs> I
1: thought you were going to join in. You <laughs> no, promised me. No, I know better. All right. I'll do the hand moves, though. Okay, so for, <laughs> so for the album Millennium, they wrote or co-wrote seven of the songs on the album, which is great for them as songwriters and artists and people who want to have their their voices on the album
0: and their royalty streams. Fattened. Right, the,
1: that's kind of what I'm getting at. But perhaps not great when your previous albums have been written by the likes of Max Martin. Max became famous for writing and co-producing for Britney Spears, uh, Backstreet Boys, In Sync, but he also co-wrote this song. So that song was uh, Max Martin's song. That's It's My Life by Bon Jovi from 2000. Isn't that crazy? I had no idea he wrote that.
0: He's written some Taylor Swift songs too. He's written
1: a bunch of uh, Taylor Swift songs, produced much of uh, her stuff Katy Perry, The Weeknd, Maroon 5, and many others. And listen to this Max Martin is a songwriter with the third most number one singles on the charts behind Paul McCartney at number one, John Lennon, number two. Okay. Wow, Max Martin is number three as a songwriter. As a producer, he is second only to, any thoughts?
0: George Martin.
1: George Martin for wow. the number one song. So he's produced the second most number one songs. He's written the third most number one songs. Max Martin, Swedish songwriter producer. So there you go. Okay, let's have a listen to this interview. This is me in conversation with AJ, Howie, and Brian of the Backstreet Boys. What about the personalities that you guys are? Does it differ from the image of being a Backstreet Boy? And is it a little frustrating not being able to project who you really are, or is it not a big problem?
2: What, I mean, you, see, what you see is what you yeah, get, I think. There, there really is not that much difference. I mean, <coughs> whatever our personality is that you see is, is, the, is the personality that's behind the actual voice that you hear. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the way that we are. I mean, I'm... I'm a little crazier than, you know, say Brian is, so I might sound a little crazier vocally. Brian's a little more mature and composed than I am, so he might sound a little bit more mature and composed when he sings. You know, Howie has the whole Latin, Latin background, so he might mix with a little Spanglish, you know. It's just like the way that we are is the way that we sound and the way that we sound is the way that we are.
1: Uh, Canada has been pretty instrumental in the success of the Backstreet Boys. Tell us about what our country means to you guys.
3: Your country is still the biggest to this date of uh, sales wise across the world and um, I mean for our videos, for CDs, everything. I mean, Canada was actually I think a big crucial part in helping us break over into our own country um, especially the the bordering, uh, what do you call it? You have providences, provinces, right? Provinces, right, Provinces, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. And um, that leaked the music into America. And so we owe a lot of our, you know, coming back home uh, attention to you guys. Yeah,
1: that's great. You know, my wife mentioned yesterday that you guys, you yourselves appeal to a teen generation, and yet she was, but their music appeals to a lot more people, it transcends the generations. How do you feel about that?
4: Well, that's what we would hope that that our music does is um, kind of bring families together, um, mothers and fathers and, and daughters and sons. I mean, um, that's that's a major, major accomplishment is to stand on stage and um, look out and see a whole family that can come to your show and enjoy it. Much less, um, it doesn't have to be a um, it doesn't have to be a look or an image or a, a cute face because people that are coming home from five o'clock traffic and work um can listen to something on the radio and enjoy it and it doesn't really matter if it's oh, well, that's a backstreet boys song well I like it anyway <laughs> and that goes for the you know the older audience that we have mm-hmm. so and it just comes with making respectable music I think as long as we continue to focus on that then then I think we'll be okay
1: mm-hmm. so I was talking to another woman uh, yesterday in her she's in her early 20s she saw a show I think you did at SkyDome in March And she said she thought you guys were great. The only problem was there was so much screaming that she couldn't really enjoy the concert. Like, she enjoyed the show, but as for hearing the music, it was a real tough time. Somebody behind her had a whistle or something. Um, So (laughs) do you ever wish you could perform in in a more intimate setting where the crowd wasn't quite as nuts? Like, I know you appreciate your fans. I have no doubts about that, just judging from the things that you sing about and the things you say. But do you ever wish there was a time when you could just kind of like, listen to me play, please. And that's
4: something that we worry about because we want all ages, like I was saying, to, to be able to come to the show and, and enjoy it. Um, the only warning that we could give the older audience would be to, to bring a set of earplugs ear <laughs> or uh, or just purchase a, a $2 set real yeah. quick um, at the venue because I know that um, I think that we have them available, yeah. you know, because it can be loud. I mean, we have the luxury of wearing ear monitors so we can hear ourselves because, you know, back in the day, six, seven years ago when we didn't have that technology back then, it was kind of hard for us to hear ourselves, which made it difficult for us to sound good. So so we try to, you know, pride ourselves on sounding good and having everybody enjoy themselves.
1: I want to talk about fame a little bit. What is, what's it like to always, people are always expecting you to be
3: on? It's one of those kind of things that, you know... We totally didn't exactly know what we were getting ourselves into when we when we first started. <laughs> oh, we totally um, didn't know. I mean, it was like one of the things that we kind of knew we were getting ourselves into. Obviously, we knew that we'd you know lose a bit of privacy and there's some sacrifices you would have to make for fame. And it was one of those kind of things that we would, I don't think none of us would ever you know change it for you know a moment. But I think we thought when we first got into it that it was a little bit more of like get up you know go to the next town do a show. Um, you know, come back, maybe go out or whatever. Come back, go to sleep. You know, and it was a little bit more of a uh, not so hectic schedule. And as we, as you know, things go on, we've learned a lot about the business. You know, uh, about you know promoting the album, about doing videos and stuff like that. It's it's really you know it's quite a bit more involved in, into it. So um, we did lose a little bit of privacy and our own free time, but mm-hmm. it's one of those kind of things that you know. You know, the people want to see, you know, in order for, to keep yourself, you know, out there, you have to be, you know, exposure through media and stuff like that. And obviously people, when we're around, they always want you know, they think that we're constantly, you know, having a great day, you know, and sometimes don't know that we may, w- we're normal people as well, we sometimes may w- wake up on the wrong side of the bed or, you know, but it's one of those kind of things that we just take it day by day.
1: How often can you allow yourself to forget that you're a Backstreet Boy and just... Think of yourself as who you are.
4: Well, the majority of the time, I know when we have time off um, and I'm home, you know, with my family or visiting visiting my family or if I'm home just by myself, it's easy, I think, for me to forget um, the success and, and the, the level of, of success that we have um, until you try to go to the mall or you try to go grocery shopping or something like that, and then, you know, I. It, I have uh, appointments to tint my windows on my car because I can't drive my car around because people, you know, will see right through the windows. But there's things that you got to do uh, in order to be, you know, normal like that. I guess um, I have to go to the grocery at three in the morning uh, in order to to kind of go to be by myself, so to say, so I can just be normal and shop. Um Last time A.J. and I went to the mall together has been years ago uh, just because when we travel together, it's it's a little worse than, you know, just I think one of us being at a certain spot. But sometimes it's hard to forget that we have a lot of success, and sometimes it's easy. You know, it just comes and goes sometimes.
1: What's the biggest misconception about fame?
2: That it's all fun and games, that it's all... You make millions and millions of dollars. You, when you sign a record deal, you're instantly famous. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're loved by millions. You it's know, not really work. It's yeah. It's all fun. You get to party a lot, travel the world, make lots of money, drive fancy cars, wear nice jewelry. No, um, <laughs> it's it is a lot of hard work. It's a lot of dedication. Um, it's a lot of trust. It's trusting the people that work for you, the people that work with you. It's taking the time out to make things work to benefit you as to well as well as to benefit those that work for you, um, to be able to dedicate time to your fans, to your family, to your friends, to not forget who you really are and where you really came from, to keep your feet on the ground, your head out of the clouds, and to just stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, a lot of people get in this business and don't last very long because they get caught up in the hype and they get caught up in being a superstar, quote-unquote, but if you, you, you can be a superstar and still be normal Joe Schmo at the end of the day, and be respectable towards people, and not get arrogant and lightheaded, and just you know think that you're God because you're not, and you're you know it's it's a very frustrating business, but it's also a very prosperous and very pleasing business as well.
1: Not too long ago, if you were a, a teen idol and you got married, you didn't tell anybody. Like, uh, Davy Jones of the Monkees, uh, Corey Hart up in Canada. He was married around the time of his big success. Nobody knew. Uh, Brian, you recently got married. Is that right? Yes. So why did you decide to, to tell people? Was it not even a, a question whether you would?
4: Well, it's something that I couldn't really hide. Um, I mean, this situation that we're at in our career, you know, people would find out. Um, I'm not going to blatantly lie to people and tell them that I'm not married or that I don't have plans to be, um... And and I am. It was just part of my life, and so many people out there know, you know, our lives, in, you know, in and out. <laughs> um, everything we do, they keep track of us, and um, I just thought if, you know, if we just go on and, you know, let it happen, and people are going to talk about it, and there was rumors and this, that, and the other, and I just speak the truth, you know. I mean, my life is what it is, so.
1: What song do you sing that you didn't write that means the most to you personally, that you really go, you know what, that reflects who I am even though I didn't write it?
2: Certainly, the meaning would have to be my number one pick because that was the last song that we recorded with Dennis Pop before he passed away in Stockholm, Sweden. And um, the video itself is very deep, very... Personable. Personable. And uh, that song, I think, will always have a special place in in our hearts as well as... our producers that work out in Stockholm. Um, that song, I, I think, definitely covers a lot of ground when it comes to feeling that we, feeling that's that's very touching to us. And it's a song that we didn't write. I wish we did write it, but we didn't. We didn't write it.
1: <laughs> Speaking of great songs, what is it? What is it that has to capture you to decide as a group that you want to perform a song?
4: It's, it's got to be melodic. Um, has to have. Um has to have a, a good melody in the verses as well as in the chorus. Um, I like to hear something that that I can listen to just w- one time through and um, and basically sing for the rest of the day. Um, there's a lot of songs on the radio like that now um, that are a success. Um, but a lot of times when you come up with songs like that, you you want them to have longevity. Um, you want them to be respected. Um, and I think that's what we bring to the table, like Howie was saying, good material that's that's melodic, but at the same time, with with um, intricate harmony that we could add to it uh, to change it up a little bit um, to keep people guessing. Um, like I want it that way, for instance. It's a very simple song, um, but it can mean so many different things. Um, to to anybody, to your five-year-old little boy or (laughs) yourself. So
1: So there you go, from 18 years ago, my conversation with three-fifths of the Backstreet Boys Two-fifths of the Backstreet Boys were in the hotel room next to us doing other interviews, so they split them up. Mm. Now, they either split them up because they weren't getting along, because that's a rumor that I heard very, <laughs> very recently. I'm not going to tell you from who, Christopher. Um, <laughs> or they split them up so they could get more press done, which is probably just as likely an answer as any at that point, because they were revolving through the press that day in New York.
0: Yeah, I remember there was a lot of divide and conquer mm-hmm. going on. Like For sure. The Bengals would go to four different interviews. You right, know?
1: and everybody wanted to talk to Susanna, so nobody's yeah. happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Three quarters of the press are not happy because they don't get to talk to <laughs> Susanna Hoffs. So back to the Backstreet Boys, as you can tell by some of the questions I asked, I was really curious about what fame does to you and how it messes with you and how you try to remain yourself and also how fame is misunderstood by a large part of you know of the pop culture public us consumers of pop culture, we just think it's a walk in the park sometimes, and the money's just rolling in. And sometimes the money is rolling in, sometimes it isn't. But it doesn't make your life a cakewalk when you get to that level of fame because it's a it becomes a sprint then.
0: Like they are working so hard all the yeah. time. Well, there's a there's a funny little moment in the interview you did where one of the guys is giving a rather long and and very thoughtful answer about just that very issue. Yes, and in the background, somebody you you're asking about the misconception conceptions of of fame and and, and, and big success. And somebody in the background goes, they think it's not work. (laughs) 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 It's like... Yeah. That's right. It is work. Yeah. And while it may not seem all that exhausting to the average person, the thought of you know being adored (laughs) 24 hours a day, I think it takes a toll. That's true. Now, they
1: are very, very, very well paid for being hard workers. And there's a lot of people who work very hard who are not well paid. And so I think that's where the whole, oh my God, give me a break attitude Mm -hmm. comes from when people complain about being famous, because they're also in a way complaining about being rich. So that's where that blowback comes, I think, sometimes. So, Christopher,
0: yes,
1: I really thought my flying to New York story to meet the Backstreet Boys would top anything that you have, but no.
5: No. Okay,
1: Mr. Fancy Pants, what have you done
0: with the Backstreet Boys? Well, they recorded a song of mine. You
1: know what? It was a song
0: written for what? Go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, that. I just hate you for that, but actually, that is really awesome.
0: Well, it was a song that was written originally for a television show called Instant Star. And it was on CTV for four years. Okay. And it was um, a, a show where we got to write songs for an artist. So they were, they were really legitimate songs. Lots of great songwriters involved. And I was working with my good buddy, Rob Wells, as mm-hmm. you know, who's responsible for our theme. Yes,
1: our theme music, which I love. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rob Wells.
0: And um, he ended up getting us a cut with the Backstreet Boys on one of the songs from Instant Star. Wow. And I, I remember at the time I thought, oh... Backstreet Boys. Oh, okay. Well, that's good, you know. Because they were they were so cold at that moment in time. Right. And then he played me the recording. And it was just, the vocals were so stunning and mm-hmm. so great and the blend was amazing. And I was absolutely bowled over by what they did.
1: Well, let's listen to some of that. What's the name of the song?
0: There's Us.
1: Okay, There's Us by the Backstreet Boys, written by Christopher Ward and Rob Wells.
4: Not
3: everything is supposed to Some words are best unsaid But some love is not really love at all I keep everything shared with you And that's
4: enough
1: this. A... That is amazing. What does that feel like, having one of your songs covered by the Backstreet Boys? That's
0: great. Well, you know what? The best part of it was it sounded amazing. To yeah. me. Yeah. So. That's great. But gratifying. subsequently, I got to work with Nick Carter, mm-hmm. wrote a thing with him and Rob and some other people, and he was so gracious to work with. He was so appreciative of the people that were there, the efforts that they were making. He was very complimentary. And when it came time for him to go in and sing and do his part, he absolutely put all of his focus and soul into what he was doing. I was impressed.
1: That's great.
0: That's mm. great. Have you ever had an artist
1: cover one of your songs where you were just really disappointed with the uh, results? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to bother asking you who. You're too much of a nice guy
0: to answer that question. Uh, disappointment is one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever livid? Um, I think no. I mean, there are levels of disappointment. Sometimes yes. you think, oh, well, that could have been better. And other times you think, oh, what a missed opportunity. Yes. This, this wonderful artist, the song that I'm proud of, and they just didn't make a happy marriage. Right, right. I just want to go back to your uh,
1: songwriting partner, Rob Wells, on that particular song. Rob is great on Twitter. So if you want to follow Rob, it's at Rob W Music, at Rob W music for Rob Wells. He's a collaborator often with Christopher, and he's also the writer of our theme music here on Famous Lost Words.
0: By the way, when it came time to produce the song, mm-hmm. each of the guys came in on their own and recorded a full pass of the song, Top to Bottom, uh-huh. and then later he had to mastermind and sort of Frankenstein the whole thing and t- pick little bits and pieces from Could all the Could that be guys.
1: because they weren't getting along?
0: <laughs> you know, I wasn't there, Tom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Great stuff from the Backstreet Boys and Christopher taught me with his BSB story. All right, Tom, let's talk Dan. The Dan. The Dan. The Dan. Yes,
0: okay. Okay, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker met in 1967 at Bard College in Annandale on Hudson, New York, Mm -hmm. and very soon became songwriting partners. You may remember the reference to Annandale in uh, the song My Old School. Mm -hmm. Um, They tried their hands at a bunch of things, including uh, having a cover band. Uh, They tried being songwriters for hire. And they also performed in uh, Jay and the Americans. Wow. Remember that band? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah they Only had a few in bands. America? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, their songs proved, for the most part, to be just way too complex for the artists that they were being pitched to. And producer Gary Katz suggested, light, the light's going on right now... Why don't you form a band? (laughs) So, the name Steely Dan refers to a dildo in William Burroughs' novel Naked Lunch. Are are we allowed to say dildo? Well, we just did. Twice. twice. Yeah. Anyway, this is a couple of guys that just reveled in their obscurity, their opaqueness. But miraculously, they had hit records. And
1: honestly, I do believe it was a miracle. But those songs were so catchy, and yet they were so complicated. It is a miracle.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget the first time I heard Do It Again on the radio. Mm. It was one of those, what is that yeah. moments?
1: and the clarity of Donald Fagan's voice and just the music and how it builds with the uh, with the guitar and with the keyboards. And there's so much in the background. You know, I know a lot of people who don't like Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. And I get it because they think they're sterile, but I do believe there's so much depth in perhaps not well no there's a lot of depth in, in the lyrics too but there's so much depth in the music I love it
0: yeah now Can't Buy a Thrill came out in 72 and that's the album that featured Do It Again and mm-hmm. Reel It in the Years oh great guitar intro to that yeah they did it of a tiny handful of shows mhm they had little interest in touring, and soon the band really just became Becker and Fagan mm-hmm. and all the top session players you can imagine. As the lyrics became more impenetrable, the music got denser and jazzier. Mm-hmm. But again, miraculously, it worked. Seven uh, of their albums were either platinum or gold between 72 and 81, ending with the album Gaucho. And then it looked like it was all over. Yeah. So the interview we have is from 1977, the time of the release of Asia. Now, that's the sixth of those albums, and ultimately their best-selling record, too. Um, Walter and Donald are as cool as their music. And here they talk about forming the band.
6: Well, uh, the original Steely Dan group was actually uh, sort of thrown together all uh, the musicians uh, uh, had a very good attitude about the whole thing. and, and uh, um, But it, it was a sort of a uh, quickly thrown together affair. And um, we've never really been satisfied with any group of permanent musicians. And since uh, we have such a variety of, of songs, uh, we feel that it's better to use different musicians, sometimes for each individual song, uh, as need be. So there was a famous quote from Robert
0: Christgau. Uh, he was then the rock critic for The Village Voice, one of the you know most important critics in the land.
1: We talked about him a few weeks ago. He's the one that took that shot at Carly Simon. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. That was not pretty. Well, he seemed to like the Dan. Right. He called him the best exponent of American music in that decade.
6: Well, uh, that was written, I believe, by uh, Mr. Christgau. And uh, I think probably if you call him up, Today, you'll find his opinions changed. That's just a guess. Did he use the word band? Well, that's not quite correct. Um, We're not actually a touring band, as you uh, might know. And, uh, in fact, we use a uh, a repertory group of musicians in Los Angeles and New York uh, to make records.
1: We also asked Walter and Donald how they got together with Gary Katz in the first place.
5: Well, we met him during a brainstorm, uh... We were all huddled. It was rough out there, too. Terrible. Out in Lincoln Avenue in Brooklyn, he was uh, doing some independent production, and uh, he needed some, you know, expert help. And we, of course, had never been in the studio before to speak of, so we jumped right in and took the reins. And that's how we met him. That was part of the brainstorm.
0: There's little doubt that Steely Dan were swimming upstream in the pop music world. For their second album, Countdown to Ecstasy, you know what they chose as the single? I don't know if you remember this, but it was the song Showbiz Kids. Oh. Yeah, the yeah. song was only five and a half minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Now, I may be wrong about this, and if you're a musician, please tell me. I think it is on one chord. Oh. I think the entire song is one chord, but I might be wrong That's about that. That's a weird that. call for a single. Well, they edited it for the single, mm-hmm. and I guess they must have changed the lyrics because, of course, there's that you know wonderful thing where it goes, Showbiz Kids making movies of themselves. You know, they don't give a f- about anybody else. Okay. Yeah. And I'm glad we just beeped that out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no real chorus in this. It's, it was that, what were they thinking right. moment, right? right? But you know what I love is the slide guitar in that Rick Derringer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Donald mm-hmm. Fagan talks about what was happening when they started.
5: In the middle 60s when Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were... Uh beginning to get public attention that looked like the uh exciting way to go so to speak and jazz was um wasn't wasn't popular at the time and was becoming less and less popular daily and um it seemed like rock and roll was an expanding uh you know musical form that uh that uh, we could explore you know and, and there was room for a lot of creative energy in there of course that turned out not to be true but um in the 70s when uh Radio stations dictated that, you know, any kind of music, you could play any kind of music you want so long as it ran two minutes and 36 seconds. But that was that one time we did. Both planned to be saxophone players, I think.
0: So the recording process for Steely Dan was meticulous, methodical, read slow. <laughs> <laughs> they recorded, they re-recorded songs, they edited chunks of songs together. There would be at times hundreds of takes for one song especially as the years went along to try to get that ultimate performance from that wonderful gallery of players who contributed
6: uh well actually there weren't that many problems it took us a long time to uh, prepare the material as it usually does Um, probably more work goes into the preparation and uh, writing than uh, most rock and roll albums and uh, aside from that um, we uh, went through sometimes we cut songs over several times uh, with different bands and discarded a lot of material and that takes time i, I think all the songs on asia are very good in the past uh, i've been disappointed with s- some cuts on albums and wished we had had more time but uh, i think they're all pretty good on this one i don't had really have a, a favorite t- we had quite a bit of time yeah on this one yeah.
2: i seen your picture
1: That's Steely Dan from the album Asia from 1977 and the song called Peg. And then their next album from 1980 was called Gaucho. And then they were apart for a very, very long time. And um, and then, of course, they came back. And I think the first uh, album together was Two Against Nature. Yeah, that's right. And they won, um, they won the Grammy for Album of yeah. the Year, which was a big surprise. There's some great songs on that album, including uh, Cousin Dupree, which is a funny <laughs> oh, song. Man, it's funny. And, and more
0: literal than past records for sure yes that's and speaking right. of literal you know what mm. song to me was amazing it was the one called uh, what a shame about me yes because he, he's literally it's it's almost being told in real time he encounters yeah. an old girlfriend he says i was grinding through my day gig stacking cutouts at the strand when in walked franny from nyu we were quite an item back then. And it's so literal and so conversational. Yes. And then it goes on and the exchange happens between them on the street. Yeah, And it's, um, I don't know, it's amazing that he could change gears and write in a different mm-hmm. style. Okay, this is so
1: exciting. Here we are in Famous Lost Words. And of course, the object of this show is to go back into the archives and dig up, you know, all these old gems. And some great moments and some terrible moments that we've either heard or been part of or witnessed. And... As someone who is uh, who's a big songwriting fan, a big fan of Canadian music, every once in a while I would come across this guy's name or hear his songs on the radio, and I always love them. Um, I'm talking about Mark Jordan, and Mark, you know, of course, is very well known for the song Marina Del Rey. He's well known for the song Survival. He's also known. Um, one of my favorite songs was "I'm a Camera," and oh. I love those songs. And so I've. We always don't need been... you, Mark.
0: Tom knows everything. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> Christopher, I'm too pumped. You better take over. (laughs) Well, i got to set the stage here. By the way, welcome, Mark, as our very first guest on Famous Lost Words. I'm very excited to be
7: here. Very
0: first live. As you can tell. (laughs) We had to strap him in, folks. (laughs) Well, Tom, you may not know this, but Mark and I, um, some years ago, went from slinking down the halls of Jarvis Collegiate Institute Mm -hmm. trying to avoid authority and meet girls (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to grinding out a living in clubs with names like Brugel's Tavern and oh, the Pizza man. Patio. Yes. <laughs> All have been bulldozed, uh, f- by the way. Mercifully. And then, uh, just like our history. And then, um, <laughs> next thing I know,
7: he's in L.A. recording with the members of Steely Dan. Oh, wow. They would hire the the best, most expensive... Session players, and that was, you know, like Steve Lukather, uh, Jeff Beccaro. Jeff
1: Beccaro. Mm-hmm. So, These guys ended up being in
7: Toto, right? They, they did, okay, actually. Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the people.
7: I mean, you, you worked with Donald Fagan. What was, what was Donald Fagan like? To Donald, uh, a brilliant guy, of course. as everybody knows. Uh, very uh, shy. Kind of insular, um, but great ideas, you know. He, um, and freely offering those ideas? Oh, yeah, definitely. But he he was great, and he played on a couple songs, and... uh and it was just nice to work with him. So, we lost Walter last year. Did you did you work with Walter as well? Uh, I, Walter never played on my, but he he would come to the studio. You know, When you're talking about
1: Donald Fagan, did you find him to be one of those artists who was kind of in his own world, in his own head, and he was in the studio, he would use, use it to create his canvas, mm-hmm. and so he wasn't necessarily a chatty guy with everybody there, but he would kind of quietly get what he wanted from the people that he wanted. Would, would you yes, say that's I,
7: a... I I think that's a Good way yeah, of, yeah. of uh, characterizing him. So
1: let me ask you a little bit about your music because that that music that came out of the '70s when you were recording uh, uh, those those albums, your albums, mm-hmm. um, you know, that sound was very. California slick, mm-hmm. and I loved that sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I love all kinds of music. But that sound with you know those guys from Toto and the the producer from Steely Dan and uh, you know Marina Del Rey and like I said, Survival yeah. and all those. That was a terrific sound. A, a few years later, when you were getting airplay on Canadian radio, that sound didn't exist in your music anymore. Right? It, it seemed to be a little bit more organic. So which which is the real Mark Jordan? When well, I heard it, I was surprised by the sound. But I loved it equally.
7: I often say that I I went to L. A. like James Taylor, and became Boz Skaggs. Yes, that's, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> like yes, yeah. for sure, for you sure. And, okay. and are you happy with that? Are were you happy with what happened there? At at the heart of it, I was a more organic player and mm-hmm. writer and, and, and singer, I think. And it, it was only later on that I kind of did that. Yeah,
0: But Mark, sure. people heard those songs within the production. I mean, clearly just by virtue of the number of artists that went through your catalog and recorded those yeah. songs mm. and in some cases had massive hits with them. And, and here I'm obviously thinking about Rod Stewart. Mm-hmm. Talk about your experience of working with Rod.
7: Rhythm of My Heart was a demo that uh, John Capek, my writing partner, at the time, and I did. Rod heard it some years later, actually. We wrote it in 83, and he, he heard it six or seven or eight years ag- after that. You know what a hit song is. It's the mm. r- right artist at the right time. Yeah. Mm. In that career. And Rod called me, and I my wife said, Don't answer the phone. And, and I said, my, my dad used to have a saying when the phone rang. He said, he he was a singer as well. And he, my dad always said this could be the call, so I actually <laughs> I said that to Amy. I picked it up and it was uh, Rob Dickens and Rod Stewart on, for calling from London, and I thought they were kidding. And uh, and then Rod said, "I'm going to sing the out of this song." <laughs> said, Beautiful, and he did, and uh, it was. Uh, well, it was a that was a game changer for me. For but sure, I I've, yeah. I've worked with him through the years as well. I see. Is he a, a demanding guy
0: to write for? Does he ask for changes? Oh yeah. But well, what what is give me an idea what he asks for.
7: Well, uh in rhythm of my heart, he wanted um the 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 original was uh, across the street the river runs down in the gutter, life is slipping away. I ha- it was about a guy lying in the gutter. <laughs> a mark jordan lyric yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh and rod uh, didn't didn't like that and and you have to respect that because artists know their their audience Mm -hmm. and you can't say something that their audience won't accept and and so i i rewrote that for him there was a risk
0: as i recall that that record was not going to come out at the last minute right that's right
7: really Uh, George Bush went into a a desert storm. Rhythm of My Heart is an anti-war song. It's about a guy that wonders if love has disappeared from the face of the planet because he's in a war. Mm -hmm. But uh, the BBC in their wisdom said, we can't play this because there's references to war. Desert Storm only lasted three days, I think.
1: Yeah, but very they
7: phoned me literally a week before it was to come out. So we're not going to play it. Oh and, no! And then they, the label went Ballistic and I, they said you got to rewrite this. And I think I was up at my mother-in-law's cottage in Lake Simcoe in Toronto, north of Toronto, and rewriting like a. Madman, and and did you
1: felt like you were neutering your own? Your I own did. Child I didn't there? feel yeah. good about it. Didn't yeah. feel
7: good. I ne- I'd never got anything I liked, and and I never showed them anything. I thought it was just over, and then it, the war was over. You um, worked in L.A. <clears throat> you were there before
0: I was, so you were there in the wacky '80s. Yeah. Do
7: you
0: have any stories of studios in the late wacky '70s? Yeah. Do you have any studio stories from that era that will
7: curl someone's hair? Well, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of drugs in those days. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and sometimes it got out of hand. And I one night I I, I remember giving Al Jarreau a singing lesson. That is a which, mistake uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have done in retrospect. <laughs> looking back, but he was he was he was pretty uh, buoyant himself. So. A few minutes ago, you said that "Rhythm of My Heart" was a game changer for you. How do,
1: how was it a game changer? Uh,
7: suddenly, I, uh, you know, more people heard about me mm-hmm. as a songwriter. So I guess it it was very good for that part of my career.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember I, the day that uh, he recorded it. You came over to my place yeah. with the Cheshire Cat grin and yeah. said, "Chris." <laughs> I got a rod. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I knew exactly what you meant.
1: <laughs> but also on a very practical level, a song that that is that big, and you, do you, if you don't mind me asking, how much of the songwriting do you own of
7: that? Well, I split everything with my writing partner. 50-50. John came back. K. Okay, back.
1: so that really will pay the bills for you know for many years to come. Am I am I correct in that? You got that right. Yeah, sure. And, and Christopher and I have talked about that. You know, it with did the in those days. Yes, it yes. wouldn't today. Oh, okay, okay. That's interesting because because sometimes those songs have a long life. Right, yeah. we were talking about Black Velvet and how sometimes in in these singing competitions, you know, like The Voice and American Idol and that kind of thing, if a song like that is played again, uh, Christopher, you reap the rewards of that, and and I'm sure that every once in a while that happens to you, where a, a person might sing that Rod Stewart song, and as a result, you you reap the rewards of that, and that's that's so. Cool that you can write one song and it can live forever, but it can also pay practical dividends to someone yeah. like yourself. No,
7: it, it was a great time. Yeah. to have a hit.
1: So great to meet you, Mark Jordan, and uh, you have a new album out, and it's called "From the Beginning." We're looking forward to hearing that. My pleasure.
7: Thank you, Mark. It's great to talk to you, both. <laughs>
1: Rod Stewart from 1991, Rhythm of My Heart, written by our guest, Mark Jordan. Mark, don't leave yet. You're signing one of your albums for me. I absolutely loved meeting you. Okay, and speaking of Rod Stewart, we have an incredible 70s interview with him coming up in the next few weeks. It is so revealing. We also have an episode of When Rockstars Attack with Rod Stewart, and he's talking about one of the Rolling Stones, which is very interesting. Also coming up on When Rockstars Attack in the next few weeks karen carpenter it's a beauty we've got some really fun moments let us know on facebook at famous lost words who you want to hear from on our show also if you want to sponsor our show reach out to us on facebook or on twitter at famous lost pod thanks very much for listening our producer is adam karsh our executive producer is rob farina i'm tom jokic with christopher ward talk to you next time